section six of a history of our own times volume four by justin mccarthy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter fifty driven back across the rubicon part one the queen opened the new parliament in person she then performed the ceremony for the first time since the death of the prince consort the speech from the throne contained a paragraph which announced that her majesty had directed that information should be procured in reference to the right of voting in the election of members of parliament and that when the information was complete the attention of parliament will be called to the result thus obtained with a view to such improvements in the laws which regulate the right of voting in the election of members of the house of commons as may tend to strengthen our free institutions and conduce to the public welfare some announcement on the subject of reform was expected by every one nobody could have had any doubt that the new government would at once bring forward some measure to extend the franchise the only surprise felt was perhaps at the cautious and limited way in which the proposed measure was indicated in the royal speech some of the more extreme reformers thought there was something ominous in this way of opening the question a mere promise to obtain information on the subject of the franchise appeared to be minimizing as much as possible the importance of the whole subject besides it was asked what information is required more than we have already is this to be merely an investigation as to the number of persons whom this or that scale of franchise would add to the constituencies is the character of the reform to be decided by the mere addition which it would make to the voters lists rather than by the political principles which an extended franchise represents is there to be what burke calls a low-minded inquisition into numbers in order that too many englishmen should not be allowed the privilege of a vote there was something ominous therefore in the manner in which the first mention of the new reform bill was received as well as in the terms of the announcement many circumstances too made the time unpropitious for such an undertaking the cattle plague had broken out toward the close of the previous year and had spread with most alarming rapidity at the end of eighteen sixty five it was announced that about eighty thousand cattle had been attacked by the disease of which some forty thousand had died from six thousand to eight thousand animals were dying every week the government the cattle owners and the scientific men were much occupied in devising plans for the restriction of the malady some keen controversy had arisen over the government proposals for making good the losses of the cattle owners whose animals had to be killed in obedience to official orders to prevent the spread of disease there were already rumours of the approach of that financial distress which was to break out shortly in disastrous commercial panic cholera was believed to be travelling ominously westward there were threatened disturbances in ireland and alarms about a gigantic fenian conspiracy it did not need to be particularly keen-eyed to foresee that there was likely soon to be a collision of irreconcilable interests on the continent there was uneasiness about jamaica there was uneasiness about certain english men and women who were detained as prisoners by theodore king of abyssinia 
moreover the parliament had only just been elected and a reform bill would mean a speedy dissolution with a renewal of expense and trouble to the members of the house of commons certainly the time did not seem tempting for a sudden revival of the reform controversy which had been allowed to sleep in a sort of kirfhäuser cavern during the later years of lord palmerston's life many conservatives did not believe that the studied moderation of the announcement in the queen's speech could really be taken as evidence of a moderate intention on the part of the ministry while radicals generally insisted that the strength of the old whig party the dukes as the phrase went had been successfully exerted to compel a compromise and keep mr gladstone down most of the tories would have it that mr gladstone now had got it all his own way and that the cautious vagueness of the queen's speech would only prove to be the prelude to very decisive and alarming changes in the constitution not since the introduction by lord john russell of the measure which became law in eighteen thirty two had a reform bill been expected in england with so much curiosity with so much alarm with so much disposition to a foregone conclusion of disappointment on march twelfth mr gladstone introduced the bill his speech was eloquent but the house of commons was not stirred it was evident at once that the proposed measure was only a compromise and a compromise of the most unattractive kind the substance of the government scheme may be explained in a single sentence the bill proposed to reduce the county franchise from fifty pounds to fourteen pounds and the borough franchise from ten to seven pounds there was a savings bank franchise and a lodger franchise but we need not discuss smaller details and qualifying provisions the borough franchise of course was the central question in any reform measure and this was to be reduced by three pounds the man who could be enthusiastic over such a reform must have been a person whose enthusiasm was scarcely worth arousing the peculiarity of the situation was that without a genuine popular enthusiasm nothing could be done the house of commons as a whole did not want reform for one obvious reason the house had only just been elected members had spent money and taken much trouble and they did not like the idea of having to encounter the risk and expense all over again almost immediately all of the conservatives were of course openly and consistently opposed to reform not a few of the professing liberals secretly detested it these latter would accept it and try to put on an appearance of welcoming it if popular excitement and the demeanour of the government showed that they must be for it or against it only a small number of men in the house were genuine in their anxiety for immediate change and of these the majority were too earnest and extreme to care for a reform which only meant a reduction of the borough franchise from ten pounds to seven pounds it seemed a ridiculous anticlimax after all the indignant eloquence about unenfranchised millions to come down to a scheme for enfranchising a few hundreds here and there it was hard for ordinary minds to understand that a ten pounds franchise meant servitude and shame but a seven pounds franchise was national liberty and salvation all this for three pounds was a little too much for plain people to comprehend the bill was founded on no particular principle it merely said 
we have at present a certain scale of franchise let us make it a little lower and our successors if they feel inclined can keep on lowering it no well-defined basis was reached there seemed no reason why if such a bill had been passed some politician might not move the session after for a bill to reduce the franchise a pound or two lower absolute finality in politics is of course unattainable but a statesman would do well to see at least that a distinct and secure ledge is reached in his descent he ought not to be content to slip a little way down to-day and leave chance to decide whether he may not have to slip a little way further to-morrow the announcement made by the government had only what is called in theatrical circles a succes d'estime those who believed in the sincerity and high purpose of lord russell and mr gladstone and who therefore assumed that if they said this was all they could do there was nothing else to be done these supported the bill mr bright supported it somewhat coldly at first but afterwards when warmed by the glow of debate and of opposition with all his wonted power it was evident however that he was supporting lord russell and mr gladstone rather than their reform bill mr mills supported the bill partly no doubt for the same reason and partly because it had the support of mr bright but it would have been hard to find any one who said that he really cared much about the measure itself or that it was the sort of thing he would have proposed if he had his way there were public meetings got up of course in support of the bill and the agitation naturally gathered heat as it went on mr gladstone became for a time a popular agitator on behalf of his measure and stumped the country during the easter holidays it was during this political campaign that he made the famous speech in liverpool in which he announced that the government had passed the rubicon had broken the bridge and burned the boats behind them he truly had done so his career was to be thenceforward as the path of an arrow in the direction of popular reform but his government had to recross the rubicon to make use of the broken bridge somehow for the purposes of retreat before however the delivery of this celebrated speech the defects of the bill and the lack of public interest in it had produced their natural effect in the house of commons the moment it was evident that the public as a whole were not enthusiastic about the measure the house of commons began to feel that it could do as it pleased in the matter it may seem rather surprising now that the conservatives or at least those of them who had foresight enough to know that some manner of change was inevitable did not accept this trivial and harmless measure and so have done with the unwelcome subject for some time to come many of the conservatives however were not only opposed to all reform of the suffrage on principle but were still under the firm belief that they could stave it off for their time others there were who honestly believed that if a change was inevitable it would be better for the good of the country that it should be something in the nature of a permanent settlement and that there should not be a periodical revival of agitation incessantly perplexing the public mind others too no doubt saw even already that there would be partisan chances secured by embarrassing the government anyhow therefore the conservatives as a man opposed the measure but they had allies day after day saw new secessions of emboldened whigs and half-hearted liberals the thanes were flying from the side of the government 
mr gladstone had announced his intention also to bring in a bill dealing with the redistribution of seats but he preferred to take this after the reform bill at once he was encountered by an amendment from his own side of the house and from very powerful representatives of whig family interest calling on him to take the redistribution scheme at once to alter the rental to a rating franchise to do all manner of things calculated to change the nature of the bill or to interfere with the chances of its being passed into law the ministerial side of the house was fast becoming demoralized the liberal party was breaking up into mutinous camps and unmanageable coteries the fate of this unhappy bill is not now a matter of great historical importance far more interesting than the process of its defeat is the memory of the eloquence by which it was assailed and defended one reputation sprang into light with these memorable debates mr robert lowe was the hero of the opposition that fought against the bill he was the achilles of the anti-reformers his attacks on the government had of course all the more piquancy that they came from a liberal and one who had held office in two liberal administrations the tory benches shouted and screamed with delight as in speech after speech of admirable freshness and vigour mr lowe poured his scathing sarcasms in upon the bill and its authors even their own leader and champion mr disraeli became of comparatively small account with the tories when they heard mr lowe's invectives against their enemies much of mr lowe's success was undoubtedly due to the manner in which he hit the tone and temper of the conservatives and of the disaffected whigs applause and admiration are contagious in the house of commons when a great number of voices join in cheers and in praise other voices are caught up by the attraction and cheer and praise out of sheer infection of sympathy it is needless to say that the applause reacts upon the orator the more he feels that the house admires him the more likely he is to make himself worthy of the admiration the occasion told on mr lowe his form seemed metaphorically at least to grow greater and grander on that scene as the enthusiasm of his admirers waxed and heated certainly he never after that time made any great mark by his speeches or won back any of the fame as an orator which was his during that short and to him splendid period but the speeches themselves were masterly as mere literary productions not many men could have fewer physical qualifications for success in oratory than mr lowe he had an awkward and ungainly presence his gestures were angular and ungraceful his voice was harsh and rasping his articulation was so imperfect that he became now and then almost unintelligible his sight was so short that when he read a passage or extract of any kind he could only puzzle over its contents in a painful and blundering way even with the paper held up close to his eyes and his memory was not good enough to allow him to quote anything without the help of documents how it may be asked in wonder was such a speaker as this to contend in eloquence with the torrent-like fluency the splendid diction the silver trumpet voice of gladstone or with the thrilling vibrations of bright's noble eloquence now penetrating in its pathos and now irresistible in its humour 
even those who well remember these great debates may ask themselves in unsatisfied wonder the same question now it is certain that mr lowe has not the most distant claim to be ranked as an orator with mr gladstone and mr bright yet it is equally certain that he did for that season stand up against each of them against them both against them both at their very best and that he held his own mr disraeli was thrown completely into the shade mr disraeli was not it is said much put out by this he listened quietly perhaps even contemptuously looking upon the whole episode as one destined to pass quickly away he did not believe that mr lowe was likely to be a peer of mr gladstone or mr bright or of himself in debate you know i never made much of lowe he said in conversation with a political opponent some years after and when mr lowe's eloquence had already become only a memory but for the time mr lowe was the master spirit of the opposition to the reform bill in sparkling sentences full of classical allusion and of illustrations drawn from all manner of literatures he denounced and satirized demagogues democratic governments and every influence that tended to bring about any political condition which allowed of an ominous comparison with something in athenian history reduced to their logical and philosophical meaning mr lowe's speeches were really nothing but arguments for that immemorial object of desire the government by the wise and good they had nothing in particular to do with the small question in domestic legislation as to whether seven pounds or ten pounds was to be the limit of a borough franchise they would have been just as effective if used in favour of an existing seven pounds qualification and against a proposed qualification of six pounds fifteen shillings seven pounds it might have been insisted was just the low water mark of the wise and good any lower we shall have the rule of the unwise and the wicked nor did mr lowe show how if the fierce wave of democracy was rising in such terrible might it could be dammed out by the retention of a ten pounds franchise his alarms and his portents were in amazing contrast to his proposed measures of safety he hoped to bind leviathan with a pack-thread alaric was at the gates mr lowe's last hope was in the power of the court of chancery to serve the invader with an injunction the simple-minded deputies who during the coup d'etat in paris went forth to meet the soldiers of the usurper with their scarves of office in the belief that they could thus restrain them from violation of the constitutional law were on a philosophical level with mr lowe when he proclaimed to england that her ancient system must fall into cureless ruin and become the shame and scandal of all time if she abandoned her last rampart the ten pounds franchise but mr lowe was embodying in brilliant sarcasm and vivid paradox the fears prejudices and spites the honest dislikes and solid objections of a large proportion of english society trades unions strikes rumours of political disaffection in ireland the angry and extravagant words of artisan orators and agitators in london a steady hatred of all american principles a certain disappointment that the american republic had not fulfilled most men's predictions and gone to pieces these and various other feelings combined to make a great many englishmen particularly hostile to any proposals for political reform at the moment mr lowe was not merely the mouthpiece of all these sentiments 
but he gave what seemed to be an overwhelming philosophical argument to prove their wisdom and justice the conservatives made a hero and even an idol of him shrewd old members of the party who ought to have known better were heard to declare that he was not only the greatest orator but even the greatest statesman of the day in truth mr lowe was neither orator nor statesman he had some of the gifts which are needed to make a man an orator but hardly any of those which constitute a statesman he was a literary man and a scholar he had a happy knack of saying bitter things in an epigrammatic way he really hated the reform bill towards which mr disraeli probably felt no emotion whatever and he started with prominence as an anti-reformer just at the right moment to suit the conservatives and embarrass and dismay the liberal party he was greatly detested for a time amongst the working classes for whose benefit the measure was chiefly introduced he not only spoke out with cynical frankness his own opinion of the merits and morals of the people who live in these small houses but he implied that all the other members of the house held the same opinion if they would only venture to give it a tongue he was once or twice mobbed in the streets he was strongly disliked and dreaded for the hour by the liberals he was the most prominent figure on the stage during these weeks of excitement and no doubt he was perfectly happy end of section six